again, Steve Dunn Podcast. Today, I am joined by Greg Parent, a repeat guest of the podcast. Greg is a mediator. I'm a mediator. I love talking to mediators about mediation, and Greg's the best there is. We both noticed that our practices have changed in the past few years. A lot of that is due to COVID, but not necessarily all of it. One of the things we've both noticed is that we're working a lot more lately with lawyers and parties from all around the country and all around the world. That creates some challenges, but also some opportunities, and we thought we'd talk about it. So here is Greg Parent. somebody in Tokyo one time, uh, which was a 12-hour time difference. And uh, as you can imagine, one of the first things that we had to figure out was, what time are we going to start? Exactly. Exactly. I had a, an attorney call in from Australia, so I, I didn't figure it out. But I know they're upside down in the water, circles counterclockwise. So um, she was in the middle of the night, and we were early morning. Yeah, so it's a 12 or 13-hour difference from the East Coast? Something like that. I know she was pulling the midnight oil, and we were still waking up with our coffee. Well, that's similar to the Tokyo situation. It's a li- it's not exactly the same time zone, but what we did there was we started the meet. Oh, and to compound the issue, we had lawyers on the East Coast. I'm on the East Coast, and we had lawyers on the West Coast. So we had uh, East Coast, West Coast, and Japan. And what we ended up doing was starting the mediation at noon, and it was just understood and accepted that the the Tokyo person was just gonna have to be up all night. That was just right. the way we, the only way to do it. Yeah, you have to go to the lowest common denominator. If you're the farthest away, you have to suck it up. The California folks are used to doing things earlier. So a lot of times you'll have lawyers or party representatives from the West Coast. And if we're starting at nine o'clock on the East Coast, that's six a.m. for them. Or if we're starting at ten, it's seven a.m. And uh, I always kind of acknowledge that, and I say, "Hey, thanks for getting up early." And they always just look at me and they're like, "Yeah, this is just another day for us. We do this all the time." I'm with you. I make a big deal about it, especially for the plaintiff. Uh, when I want to build rapport early on, and we're trying to establish our bona fides with the with the uh, plaintiff and orient them to the process, I'll say, "Listen, the person with the checkbook really wants to get this done because they got up." three hours earlier than you to be here and it's you know it's 7 a.m there um if you see them getting a couple cups of coffee give them a little bit of latitude uh because i do appreciate you being them here being here you know i've had a couple with uh i've had more than one with people in hawaii and these are people who were on vacation uh in both cases and uh that's really impressive to me. One of them was a lawyer. <laughs> there, were, one of them was a party, and I sort of understand like they're on vacation, but they really want to settle their case. And there, another one was a lawyer, and that really strikes me as dedication for somebody to attend a mediation to work when you're on your Hawaii vacation. But I think you're right. I think what you do is you take that and you you um, you celebrate that as a signal of everyone's commitment to the process and wanting to get it done. But it absolutely created um some time zone challenges you know for the same reason even more so than the west coast and then the other thing it creates is uh, a sense of really wanting to get finished <laughs> like the people who are, who are in hawaii you know sometimes when you're working with people from california it gets to be you know the end of the business day here on the east coast and we're thinking like hey you know maybe it's time to start wrapping this thing up well they they got three hours to go you know but the people in hawaii they were ready to be done Long before. Absolutely. I've, I've had them where uh, the folks have been like in Turks and Caicos or Jamaica on a vacation. No time zone challenges, but vacation challenges. 
One in particular, the uh, husband and wife were both attorneys, and I'd, I've worked with both of them. And, uh, you know, some attorneys aren't as adept at changing their backgrounds, working with a green screen on Zoom, or blurring that background. So my, you know, we want to get to the beach moment was watching the wife in the background put her hands on her hips, shake her hand, point at the wristwatch, and kind of give the, the conductor speech, hurry up music signal to the, to the speech giver. Well, I'm sure as a mediator and being the incorrigible mediator that you are, I'm sure you just turn that into looks like you need to accept the offer, man. <laughs> I said, I told him, I was like, you might want to get some more money or I can introduce you to some divorce attorneys because she wants you by, by the pool drinking, you know, time to settle yeah, the case, frozen drinks with umbrellas. And I'm going to need some more money. We don't need to be playing around. You know, you highlight something that, that uh, now as we're getting on, you know, three years of the pandemic, we take for granted Zoom. That, that's a that's a great tool for us, and we've mastered it. Um, what I'm finding are some of the unique ways in which we can use it to not only help our cases, but be adaptive to the real world. It used to be if you're in a mediation, someone would look at you and say, hey, we gotta, I got a hard stop at 3.30. I got to pick up my kids. Well, now, as you and I were just talking, I've had the same person use three different mediums in which to stay on the same Zoom call. They, they go from their computer to a phone while they're driving to the school. Then I've seen them get back on like an iPad in the carpool line, and we've never lost communication or that, that chain of communication uh, throughout the day. And, and that's something that I, I've learned to really appreciate and embrace. Um, there's no more an excuse for why we can't get something done. There's no more I can't be reachable. We're always reachable. Another thing that I've done, and I'm sure you've done, where we've been the ones who have to start at an odd time. You know, with all due respect to Tokyo and, and Hawaii and, and Australia having to usually bite the bullet, uh, or, and, and I'm sure you've had this, where you're in so much demand, Steve, that, that you're doing two in a day. One started at 8 a.m. or 9 a.m., and I've started another one at 6 p.m., and, and at first, first time I proposed that, people said, oh, 6 p.m. I said, what do you have going on? We're in a pandemic. <laughs> You're not going anywhere. Nothing's open. We can go from 6 to 10 p.m. We can go from 6 to midnight. You're going to get up and still not be able to go anywhere. So let's just use this, this, this ability that we have to effectively help our clients in closed cases. Yeah, I think you're right that part of the gig for us is to work around the schedules and needs of the people that we're working with. We're we are the last ones who need to be creating an obstacle to the process itself. And if that means starting at an odd hour to accommodate time zones or the needs of the parties, uh, then that's just part of what we signed up for in getting into this. And I completely agree the way in which video conferencing technology has completely changed what we do. You know, you and I were both mediators. I, I tell people all the time that before March 2020, I never heard of Zoom and I'd never done a mediation by video conference. Uh, on a very rare occasion, you'd have somebody call in by a telephone, you put them on a speaker. But I, I went from 0% Zoom mediations to 100% Zoom mediations literally overnight. And here we are a few years down the road. And I still get questions a lot from people. People don't do this all the time. Still will sort of ask, like, you know, which is better? And, you know, I got to tell you, in terms of successfully resolving cases, I think there's pros and cons. There's, there's some ways in which being in person is better. And there's some ways in which Zoom is better. And so here's, here's one that I think that might uh, escape 
some people's notice <laughs> that I like about Zoom. Sure. Which is that unlike like when we're sitting in person at a large conference room, you know, you got 10 people in a conference room uh, sitting around a table and I'm at the head of the table and I'm looking down that table. I'm only seeing the sides of people's faces. And especially like if there's a, uh, a PowerPoint being shown on the screen, they might even be looking away from me at the screen. And I'm not seeing what people are revealing through their facial expressions and stuff like that. Counterpoint, when we're on Zoom, I have a full screen, well lit view of Four, somebody, 4k of some <laughs> well i i try to use uh, low resolution so that my i don't have to buffer but anyway but you 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 can look right at the face of all of the participants in the conference and here's the trick they don't always know who i'm looking at right oh, and the camera misses nothing you, you really hit the nail on the head when you and i were talking about this off off the air um it's interesting to watch their reactions because I can acknowledge it in real time. If I see something uh, go across someone's face, like they smelled a burnt, you know, a burnt toast smell or something awful, I'll say, well, it seems like Mr. Dunn didn't like what I had to say there. And we just acknowledge it. I, I always mediate kind of like Ferris Bueller or Deadpool where I'm violating the fourth wall and, and talking and acknowledging in real time. But your point is especially noted because not only do you get the one person you want to look for, you get all of them. Yeah. Like you, I am often very transparent about the sort of mediator tricks that I'm using. So if, if somebody is reacting negatively, I'll acknowledge it as well. But not always. You know, sometimes what I like to do is get a little bit of insight for myself that I just kind of hold to myself. So for example, uh, one of the things that I'll often do is come into a room and just say some provocative thing and, and often, just to see what the reaction is. And oftentimes it's a number. You know, sometimes I'm, I'm just... Uh, I'm just voicing into the universe a number that, for whatever reason, I think might have some meaning <laughs> in the case, right? <laughs> and I'm trying to gauge the reaction. And Zoom makes it so wonderful because it, I might have like the you know the Brady Bunch screen with nine people looking at me from you know all different time zones, but there's really only one reaction that I really need to know. And I'll just come in and find a way to say a number while I'm staring full screen at the face of the person whose reaction is needed. And you can tell immediately, like they either, they look like they, you know, smelled something bad or they kind of, you know, they kind of look like, well, yeah, you know, maybe something <laughs> like that could work. And that, and whether or not we acknowledge it in the moment, sometimes that gives you a little, little nugget of information that now you know it and you can't unknow it. And we go from there. It, you Going along those lines with numbers specifically, I think you're right. It's, it's very important to figure out, and, and you may dangle a number that you think has some possibility. You just need to know who. But even before that, and I know you do the same thing too, I call it the um, Eddie Haskell um, move where you're trying to figure out who to butter up, or, or kids do it. Kids play mom off dad. I'm, I'm sure your, your, your son and daughter are very adept at playing you off Kelly or, or vice versa. I know my kids know to go to me or Renee on certain things, but you, you have to figure out who is going to be the decision maker. And oftentimes it's not necessarily the plaintiff. It can be the spouse. Sometimes you have a controlling non-injured spouse um, who's really the Lady Macbeth of the whole room. And, and if you're not adept at watching everything, you, you don't see who's pulling the strings. Other times it's an overbearing man who's uh, dealing with things. Sometimes it's a parent of a, of a tween child, like a 16-year-old child who old enough to understand what's going on, but still under the roof or 
maybe an immature 25 year old who's still sort of living at home, haven't they've not found their way, and and they're still under the control of the parents. Uh, Zoom Zoom equals that out, and we've talked about this before, I believe, uh, in another podcast. The beauty of Zoom too is, whereas you like the intimacy of being in person to watch body reaction because we're still only getting faces, and sometimes you get a lot in person about body language because they'll be able to hold the stone face but they've got fidgety hands or they're shifting in their seat so we're a little bit limiting compared to what you get in person but you also get to see people in their own element and again most people especially for plaintiffs who may, might be their first time using zoom we, we get to see the the kitchen and we can talk about like the art on the refrigerator. We can talk about the books in the library, the kids. You better believe we're talking about what's in the background. Absolutely. And, and a lot of times when people are in their home, they'll move from room to room. Now they'll start out in one place. I, sometimes you get to meet the dog or the cat. And by gosh, you're definitely, I will uh, often joke about how we need to get the dog's buy-in on the settlement, right? Or <laughs> or I'll try to get the dog to help me talk, in the, talk the person into making the deal, right? Yeah. There's all kinds of opportunity there. But, but you know, as we're, as we're talking about the, uh, the the pros and cons of video conferencing versus being in person, uh, it calls to mind another reality, which is increasingly commonly, and this is especially true when you're working with lawyers and parties who are in, all around the country, as you and I are, with increasing frequency now, you more and more encounter situations where some of the participants are here with you in person and some of them are zooming in to the conference. And that creates a whole host of issues. One in particular that, um, that I've noticed is when you have people who are zooming in remotely and the view that they're seeing is of the whole conference room. So like on a Zoom conference room, you, you're seeing everybody's face because they're all looking at their, you know, their webcam. But when you have uh, people, you got one group of people sitting around a conference room and the other people are, uh, are looking at you from the screen that's on the wall, what those people are seeing and hearing is a room full of people, which frankly is suboptimal a lot of times. It doesn't look good. It doesn't sound good. It's hard to see and hear. Uh, and that creates some challenges. And there's some ways we at Miles Mediation have got some really good technology, uh, some Zoom rooms that are specifically set up for that, that makes it about as good as it can be. I mean, the, if, particularly the sound is excellent, but it's still, it's inherently limiting. We have the rooms that, I don't know if you have the iPad Pro, if you've seen that. The iPad Pro has that cinematic camera that will follow the speaker and it'll follow movement. It's almost like having your own personal cinematographer who will zoom in on the, the speaker and things like that. We have cameras who can do that. We can change the view. But one of the, the easier things I do is I'll just ask everyone to sign in, even the folks who are there, and then I'll bring in two or three cameras, and I get my Steven Spielberg set up, and I have a camera directly on front of the in front of the plaintiffs, so that the adjuster who's appearing, you know, from California, can see them and not. You be bring limited. that in. You have multiple cameras. I have. I, what I will do, um, I, I'm always self-deprecating, but I'll tell the adjuster, hey, since I've got a face for radio, <laughs> and and you've seen me. I'll turn my computer around if no one else has brought one. But I usually try and frame them up. And I'm not picking sides, Steve, as you well know, but I do think it's important for them to get the best shot. I'm very cognizant because uh, we, we usually we have windows. I'm very cognizant of dimming the windows so people aren't backlit like a 60 Minutes informant. You know, uh, 
Can, you can't see me, can you? Well, you know, one of the skill sets that we've all had to develop as mediators that, you know, a lot of us didn't come to naturally is just managing technological things. Like, so for example, somebody involved in this process needs to know how to avoid audio feedback. And so, and, and that's got to be us. Absolutely. <laughs> right. And so we have to be the ones, because one of the things that you can do to ameliorate this problem I described of the conference room view uh, is that you can have everybody who's in person still be on the Zoom, right, uh, with their own device. But you have to be really careful about muting and turning off microphones and stuff like that. I always call out, you know, Mr. Dunn, you now have the con. Then I'll mute, turn down my volume. And there's always a little bit of feedback, like at a concert warm-up when you hear them, whatever, screeching. But generally speaking, we've gotten that down, and, and, and I don't even think about it anymore. You know, Greg... I don't necessarily hate it if we have a little bit of technical difficulty at the beginning of the mediation because, uh, first of all, it's, it's one of the things we got to work through, uh, but it's one of the things that we're able to work through because we've got all this experience now managing these video conferences. We have to be very adept at all you know the breakout rooms and moving people around and making sure their audio and video is working. It's okay with me if there's a little bit of glitches at the beginning of it because, for one thing, it helps you be helpful to somebody right at the very beginning. And maybe that's a meaningful person who's going to be a decision maker in the thing. And you're establishing a relationship where you're, you know, you're, you're demonstrating your, your competence, your empathy, your patience with that situation. We're never giving people a hard time because their audio video isn't where we're helping them with it. Right. And it, it's a great way of setting the tone for the personal relationship that you have to establish very quickly in this work. The other thing it does is it gives you an opportunity to be self-deprecating and to acknowledge that there are some challenges that we're having to work through. And guess what? We're going to be working through a lot more challenges together. But if we if we work together and if we keep plugging away at it, we can be successful. So I'm, I'm okay if there's a little bit of bump in the road. Well, you raise a good point because that's part of the larger thing of what our job is. And when you get – you can see it on screen especially, but you see it uh, even more so in person when someone might be clutching – a purse. Someone might just be very tight. Uh, don't loosen a tie. Don't, don't. They're very ramrod, sitting straight in their seat, and you can just sense their tenseness. When we're in person, we get the chance to offer them coffee, maybe tour them around the office, show them, and, and, and orient them to the office. But you're right on Zoom. It lets them realize, hey, no one here is perfect. No one here is. What what I do uh, is more of an icebreaker. If there if everything is working fine, there's no little problem for me to fix, and automatically start off with one in my pro column versus the cons column. Uh, is I'll I might acknowledge, hey, it's okay. I'm wearing flip flops. We're talking about some serious things, but I'm wearing Birkenstocks over here, or I'm wearing athleisure from the waist down. I call it the mullet, and you just acknowledge. Now that that joke is as old as Zoom. Everyone, you know, but. Doing that on a constant basis when we've read the room and realize you need either self-deprecation or an icebreaker goes a long way with folks. I've brought my two dogs, they're, they're Shih Tzus, so I can hold both of them in my lap. When people bring their dogs, I'll just call mine down, call them in. If my daughter makes me a sandwich for lunch on a day when school's closed or school's out in the summer and I'm Zooming, I'll bring her on screen and say, I want you to meet Mr. Dunn, Mr. Miles. All of that just... You can see the tension just lighten in the room. Even even between warring attorneys who are fighting passionately and aggressively over the last little bit of the pot, when you, when you bring in and remind them that, hey, there's a bigger picture here. 
Well, uh, speaking of warring attorneys, uh, that reminds me of another issue that comes up when you're working with folks from all around the country. A lot of times what you've got is you've got uh, lawyers and parties from another place who uh, the way that this comes to me is usually I've got uh, lawyers and parties from anywhere in the U.S. or the world, but they, for whatever reason, they've got a case in North Carolina. They've been sued by a business in North Carolina, or they're suing somebody who is located in North Carolina, and this is the only way to get jurisdiction. And okay, fine, great, we got Zoom, uh, so we can get together. We don't have to get on a plane to have a conversation with each other, and that's wonderful. But what Zoom does not uh, affect in any way is the way that legal the legal culture varies from place to place in a lot of ways that really hadn't occurred to me before I started working with lawyers from other states a lot. So as one tangible example, I don't know if this is true where you are in Atlanta, but here in Charlotte and in North Carolina generally, in almost every case at some point, one party or the other is going to throw in the mediator's fee as a settlement term. Like they're, they're going to say, all right, you know, usually it's at the end, and usually it's sort of like the way of bridging the final gap. Somebody's made an offer, and they say it's their final offer, and the other side wants to accept it, but they'll say, all right, we'll accept your offer if you pay the whole mediator's fee, which would normally otherwise be split between the two sides. And this is a very common thing in North Carolina. We, we anticipate it. We know it's going to happen. I've developed the habit, though, uh, when working with lawyers from other states of sort of flagging that possibility uh, at some point during the process because I'll never forget working with a couple of guys from Milwaukee one time. And we get to the end, and I walk in, and I say, okay, they'll accept your number if you pay the mediator's fee. And they looked at me like like I had two heads. Like they had never heard of that. It wasn't something that they did. And there's a lot of little things like that. And they're not actually little things. There's things like opening sessions and opening statements. Do we do them? Do we not do them? Are we confrontational or are we co collaborative in those sessions? No, you raise a good point. And, and I've, like you, I've had a, the same mediation where I've had basically the compass points of the country a Chicago attorney, a Dallas attorney, someone from Florida, New York, California. And you do get different styles, different ways of doing things. As they come up, I try and address them. And again, you and I both use sort of self-deprecation. But I might say to them, you know, down here in Georgia, we do things a little bit differently. And, and I will state what we're used to. And it's usually, you know, a straight ball down the middle of the plate or, or an easy bandwagon for them to jump on. But I'm outlining, hey, when you use a bracket, do you really mean your midpoint or are you not using your midpoint? Are you including everything within the bracket or not? Is this something real or not? Now, listen, just... that's a great point, man. And while yeah. you're at it, if if the other side accepts the bracket, then whose turn is it to make the next move? There's regional variability that, on that. That kind of blew my mind that some people don't have opening sessions. And sometimes the parties are so well prepared, the, the subject matter is so sensitive. You do a lot of business disputes where there's not a death. They're, they're still as passionate and warring. Right. But, but on my side, where I deal a lot of med mal cases, a lot of nursing home cases, about, I go sometimes two weeks where I don't have a live plaintiff. I'm dealing just with a decedent and their family. And in those kinds of cases, I understand where they may not want a big dog, and, as we say, a big dog and pony show, showing the accident scene minute by minute. You don't need like the Zapruder film right. to, to you know, break open those scabs and, and, and make the wounds fresh again. But I almost always insist on getting to do the mediators part, because especially when you're dealing with 
folks from let's call them the compass points around the, the country or you, Mr. International, when you have the gentleman in Tokyo who's <laughs> trying to drink a lot of uh, Red Bull to stay awake or we've got someone from Australia, you, I think it's important that you lay sort of the groundwork because you have to remember as the mediator, everyone has sort of agreed to let someone else steer the ship. And when people say, we don't need an opening, I still fight for the ability to do that because that's my only time to establish my bona fides with the plaintiff. Sometimes the attorneys, too, who don't know me, to show that I can walk and chew gum, to show that I've read the materials they've sent me and show a command of it, kind of introduce and, and uh, instill some confidence in the process and the neutrality of the process. So I never, I never concede that without kicking and screaming. Now I agree. I mean, if, if the lawyers fight for it, then I figure they've got their reasons and they, they know the case better than I do. And they know whether uh, getting everyone together is going to be productive or not. But I'm like you, I would much rather deliver that spiel one time for everyone's benefit. And it's nice for everybody to see everybody else's faces, even if they don't say a word, that's more commonly what we're doing these days is we'll get together for the mediators pitch uh, but the parties will keep it short uh, for their part. And I'll say another part that, that comes up often. You know, we get everyone's best foot forward. So everyone wants to be nice to us. We, we don't, they don't come in with grudges or chips. And uh, I, don't, I don't know if you and I have ever covered this before, but it's like when your siblings fight or children, your children fight, siblings are fighting. And, you know, one hit the other one right before you walked in the room. But they throw an arm around them to say, hey, we're getting along and you know it's not quite right exactly, but in, in these settings, when with that opening, you also get to show that you may have a beef with attorney A, but I know them and respect them. I'm not giving them any favoritism, but this is these are the rules of uh, engagement for today. I don't care about the fights you guys, you guys have had on Discovery. I don't care about what they did to you two cases ago or when you used to work at their firm. Today, we're all about this person. You get to recenter people. And I think that the, the plaintiff needs to see that because the other thing they see is we know, or at least we're talking to the other side the same way, so there's no wondering like, hmm, they're pushing me around. What are they doing in the other room? Well, it is interesting the way that most folks tend to be on their best behavior in dealing with the mediator. Uh, and it is remarkable sometimes when mediating for lawyers uh, with whom I've been opposing counsel before, I, how very different uh, that relationship is. But you know what is an interesting tell is when you get the exception to that rule, when you get somebody who's coming in and is kind of grouchy and aggressive and confrontational with you as the mediator. That's, a, that's so unusual that it's a real interesting signal that either uh, that's just the only way that person knows how to be and that that's just one of the dynamics that you're going to have to contend with or that there's something unique about this case uh, that makes it particularly challenging. Either way, you're going to have to figure it out. We have ways and rubrics that we've used in our job to kind of uh, put people at ease, break through what seems to be a roadblock, creatively think of ways to, to reach folks. With the irascible, grouchy, woke up on the wrong side of the bed, attorney towards me if it gets really bad and you can't get them to smile or to to shake that mood I pulled them out and said you know is it something with me did you try and get someone else and I was the second choice and you're stuck with me I'll just kind of address it like like we talked about earlier as Ferris Bueller is Deadpool violating that fourth wall and just say what is it and sometimes they'll break through and go you know what my car got a flat kids got a toothache daycare is closed 
um, sick spouse, and I'm just, I'm sorry, it's not you, it's me. And then you realize, okay, cool. You're just a person, you're having a day, and that's okay, we can work through it. You know, I'll tell you, a lot of times, if, if I encounter somebody, sometimes it's a party. A lot of times it's a party. Sometimes there's like CEO types or business owner types who are just not used to not being in total control of every process that they find themselves involved in, including the relationship with their lawyer. And sometimes uh, I, I do think it is important as the mediator to assert yourself with respect to your process and what they've come, they've come to see you and you're in charge. And sometimes the only way you can deal with somebody who's trying to throw their weight around is just to let them know that you recognize that that's what they're doing. And to ask, I, I ask politely for them to, uh, give me a break with all that stuff. <laughs> you know, but I try to keep it very polite, but sometimes, and I, I remember the one, the, the worst example of this that I ever had is this guy who I think probably at the end of the day is probably just a reprehensible person. I mean, I, I, every now and then you run into some real bad people, you know, in this work. And this guy and his own lawyer was definitely embarrassed by his conduct. I mean, he, he couldn't, he couldn't be controlled this guy. And he was in, he was involved in the lawsuit that he was involved in because of who he was for right. sure. You know? And finally I just said to him, look, he kept saying like, you know, I, I don't mean any disrespect or anything. I was like, you keep saying that you don't mean any disrespect, but not many people talk to me the way that you're talking to me. Okay. Right. So just be aware. Right. <laughs> I, I think that's it. it. And you and I are born with, thick skin anyway and especially when we come in that situation if we've read up on the file and we know what it's about we can be very accommodating I give people every benefit of the doubt I give them second and third fifth chances but there are times where I've had to snap at people one, one in particular not snap but kind of hold them accountable one guy came in with a buddy and the buddy was kind of like how you're describing and he was disrespectful to me the process and if it's me I'm okay but the process I get a little protective and then uh, the last straw was when he was disrespectful to his friend's attorneys. And this is a big guy. I mean, I'm six feet, and I don't want to say my weight because I hope it's going to be smaller by the time this gets done and edited. But he uh, thought he could intimidate everyone, but he didn't intimidate me. And I finally said, sir, you're only in this room because I'm letting you be in this room. You are not a party to this case, and I'm just being polite because – you seem to be here thoughtfully on behalf of your buddy, but you are not helping him. And this was in front of his attorneys in the room, not in front of the other side. Uh, that man immediately sort of broke and, and literally cowed down and sort of said, I'm sorry, boss. I'm sorry. I said, you don't have to call me boss. You don't have to apologize. I'm just telling you, you were being counterproductive to the process and I'm not going to stand for it anymore. And that was about as firm and stern as I've ever gotten. I don't. You know, it's funny. We're telling these stories. I just, you just, I just told one. You just told one. And it just so that our listeners are clear, like in ten to fifteen years of mediating cases, like I can, th on one hand, I can count the uh, number of times this is not a common yeah. thing that comes up. Uh, but two fingers. Yeah. And, 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 right. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the other things that comes up uh, in my experience in working with lawyers and parties from different geographical areas is different concepts around numbers. You know, you, you mentioned brackets, which I really appreciate because people do it different ways in different places. But there's other things like kind of going rates for cases and uh, the concept of nuisance value is one that varies widely from place to place. And so, you know, around North Carolina, if somebody comes in and says, you know, like, oh, we think this is a nuisance value case or we think this is not a nuisance value case, I can kind of wrap my head around that, but even still, like I don't jump to any conclusions about what they mean by that. 
But meanwhile, you bring in somebody from New York or from L.A., they got a different idea about what nuisance value is. And they'll say, we think this is a nuisance value case. And meanwhile, somebody from you know rural South Carolina thinks, like, that's not a bad day, right? And, <laughs> yeah. and so uh, it's one of those things that you have to take into account as you're evaluating what people are telling you. They might mean different things or they might think that they're sending you a different signal from the one that you would receive if you're not sensitive to those considerations. You've heard the phrase of being an active listener. Because we're active listeners, because we thoroughly enjoy people and like interacting people and like learning and bettering ourselves, you know, I'd like to think I'm a better mediator than I was a year ago. That leads into one of the challenges that comes up with international cases is is language itself. And I've had some situations lately that involve the use of a language interpreter, and that raises a whole bunch of issues that uh, lawyers are not necessarily accustomed to dealing with and so there's a whole art to speaking through a language interpreter that if you're not familiar with it it can be a real challenge and one of the things that you have to understand is that court interpreters are charged sternly with only like literally translating the words that are said right so it's very if you're working uh, a, a normal interpreter or a family member might sort of summarize <laughs> what was said but a court interpreter is going to say the words that were said as literally as possible and this can lead to all kinds of miscommunication if you're not sensitive to it and so for example uh, lawyers tend to speak through idiom and uh for in, uh, in colloquialism yeah, yeah colloquialisms and turns latin phrases sometimes i i was in a case with an interpreter one time where a guy he was referring to standing in the shoes of another party or putting a cart before the horse you know things like that don't necessarily translate well and that there's a there's a whole art to it and meanwhile the parties are very concerned that the sense of uh, what they're trying to communicate, not just the literal, world, literal words, but also the, um, the, the, the vibe that they're trying to get across, that that somehow carries through, and it's a challenge. Well, there are a couple of challenges in addition to what you said, and I agree 100%. We, we don't realize how many idioms we use and how many colloquialisms or metaphors, especially that I use, until you start talking to a translator, through a t- translator, and that, just comes across as like wow i don't even know if i'm speaking english anymore to these folks the i've had two two very interesting things uh, the first is you also have to ask your questions in a shorter more digestible cadence instead of doing a long expository you have to say not quite please state your name Sunombre nombre no that's right you got to break it up and give the interpreter time to to do the interview you got to take frequent breaks and you have to make it tight almost like a direct examination the other thing is you want to make sure that they are translating just like the court reporter. My, my funniest uh, interpretation story was I was I was actually a practicing attorney, and I had hired a translator for Mandarin Chinese. The plaintiffs, I was a defense attorney, the plaintiffs had a Mandarin Chinese-speaking attorney on their side. I'd ask my question. It would get translated. It would get answered. It would come back to me. And before she came back and told me what the answer was, she'd ask another question. And I'm watching the body language of the opposing, you know, co-attorney who can speak uh, Mandarin Chinese too. And he looked over at his attorney and said, 
she's asking him other questions. That's not what he's saying. And it turned out my, my translator wanted to be Perry Mason and she was taking over the questioning and the whole line of questioning. And we had to do a hard stop and just say, please translate exactly what I say and exactly the response. When you, when you add that to a mediation, you understand how it can get haywire because you and I speak in very specific words and phrases. Sometimes we're talking to the whole room. Sometimes we're just talking to the attorney in a way that the attorney hears and understands. I use a lot of phrases that will say, my spidey senses tell me. Right. And everyone knows what spidey senses. One, I can't use that with a translator. That's not going to translate. And some people will look at me kind of odd and I'll say, let me tell you what my spidey senses are. They've either told me and not authorized me or because I do 200 of these a year and I've been doing it for 12 years, I just know or it makes sense that this is a reasonable prognostication on my part. I'm not putting myself out there on a limb. You, you can trust this advice. And people understand that. It's very hard in translation. The other thing that, that you and I excel at, I rarely lead off talking about the nuts and bolts of the mediation. And spending time and getting to talk about their dog or their family, sports, as, as you well know, Mr. Duke and me being Mr. Carolina, I want to find yeah, some. Yeah, I wondered how long it was going to be. I made it about until 50 you, minutes. Until you brought up Duke and Carolina. I thought it was going to be within the first two minutes of I didn't our even wear any Carolina gear on me today. There's nothing Carolina on me today. You know, I think to your point, though, uh, language, as much as it can be a barrier and as much as it can create challenges, it, there's also the occasional sparkling moment of wonder that can come. And one of my favorite stories about that is we have a guy on our panel here in Charlotte, James Young, who's fluent in Spanish. So he's he is fluent as the mediator. And I, I wish that I were. I don't speak any other languages besides English, but he, so he's fluent in Spanish. And, you know, he'll have folks come and see him for that reason. And he's working with um, some parties one time and they came in and they knew that he could speak Spanish. But uh, the, the party was from Guatemala. And it turns out James learned to, t to speak Spanish in Guatemala. And so when he's speaking Spanish, he's speaking with that a, a, a certain accent. Yeah, a certain, like, you know, I, I don't know exactly what all the ins and outs of it were, but the party could tell, you know, I, and they and it really enhanced their connection. So for everything that can sometimes be a challenge, as mediators were constantly looking away to judo that into some sort of an advantage and that's just a, a perfect example i'll say this on on, on language um, we have three spanish-speaking mediators down in atlanta all three are critical to that because when you can speak it you take out the middle person obviously but there's such a rich understanding and like you said that person re recognizing the dialect that there's no there's nothing like that. And we do it. We try and look for that. I at least try and look for that every time in a mediation where, hey, I'm from your hometown or I ate at the Angus Barn in your town or I love that sloppy Joe place you know, down the street from where you live or I've always wanted to go there. Language just does that. I know enough to be self-deprecating and, and I get the effort for trying. It's like when we travel abroad. I'm not an ugly American. I at least endeavor and people appreciate the effort. So I might say, um, soy abogado today, a lawyer, and uh, I am guapo y, <laughs> yeah, muy, y loco. Muy guapo muy y loco. Guapo, and yeah. when I say guapo, they look at me kind of cock-eyed yeah, right, like, right, right. do I need to tell him or are you? Did he just say? 
but when I, when I do the the crazy symbol by saying loco, it, it it's one of those icebreakers that we strive for to try and win the room and uh, everything like that. <laughs> you need to tell the other side that mucho dinero. Is... <laughs> well, Greg, uh, this has been a great conversation. I appreciate very much your uh, your generosity in spending time with me and sharing with our listeners, uh, your great wisdom as a mediator. And I can't thank you enough for being, once again, uh, the, the you're leading the way as the most popular guest on the Steve Dunn Podcast. Listen, I want bedazzling. I'd like it to be Carolina Blue. And maybe those, maybe something like the Pink Ladies from Greece. Yeah. I'll yeah. take something like that in Carolina Blue. Uh, all right. We'll, we'll see what we can do. You gotta, I think you got to come on a few more times, but we'll never run out of stuff to talk about. That's for sure. Thanks for having me. Thank you.